Blog Talk Radio. Don't mind if you got something nice to say about me. I enjoy an accolade like the rest. And you could take my picture and hang it in. Good morning, and welcome to Solutions Live Business Edition. I'm your host, Chicky Fitzgerald, coming to you from Tampa, Florida. Solutions Live provides practical advice from authors and experts on a wide range of topics for professionals to help you leave your legacy. Well, good morning. It is Tuesday, May 19th, and I am coming to you from Florida, but it is not sunny. Uh, We are having an early uh, rain, and uh, it has been great for two days, so I am looking forward to that sunshine returning. We have an amazing lineup this morning, uh, as usual, and our our first guest, which we will come to in just a moment, is Dan Bricklin, inventor, innovator, blogger, and now author. And then at 10.30, we will welcome John McBride. Uh, John is a former astronaut of Challenger fame and look forward to hearing uh, about things over at the Kennedy Space Center, particularly since we're right smack in the middle of a mission. Uh, At 11 o'clock, I welcome John Milton Fogg. He is an author and networker extraordinaire. You won't want to miss listening to John. At 11.30, I'll be joined by my co-host on our show, Corporate Escape Artists, with Pamela Skillings, the author of Escape from Corporate America. And we will be talking about finding opportunity in the midst of a pretty difficult economy. But right now, I would like to turn to our first guest this morning and let me get him on the air. Good morning, Dan. Dan, do I have you? Hang on one second. Sometimes uh, my switchboard here doesn't always no, work. There we fine. go. Yeah, you hear me now? Good. <laughs> I do hear you. Good you, morning. Good morning to you. How's the weather in Boston? Oh, let's see. Looking out, I don't see any clouds. It's just blue sky, low 50s, gorgeous day. Well, that is really great. I am used to having that 335 days a year here in Florida, but today is unusual. And, you know, the last two days it's been like this, and I wonder how people who live in Seattle or in London or other places that, uh, you know, are frequented by clouds, how they cope with it, because it really does get depressing. Well, it's, you know, life has ups and downs to it, and uh, <laughs> yeah. weather does too. New England is filled, I'm here in the Boston area, and, you know, weather just has this nice rhythm to it and changes. It's very much like life. It does. We would all get really bored if it was blue sky every day, although uh, I've got a uh, really good friend who is moving to San Diego this week, and I think that's what she's heading toward. Well, Dan, for those who don't know you, and uh, I think anyone who has touched technology at all in the last 20-plus uh, years has to have at least heard from you, but you are the co-creator, along with Bob Frankston, of the VisiCalc spreadsheet. Um, you also founded a company called Software Garden, uh, which you are, are uh, currently heading up, as I understand. Yes. And uh, I met you, actually, uh, actually never really met you until a, a, a few months ago, but uh, you came across my path, actually, I want to say it was 1984, and you'll have to correct me because you certainly mm-hmm. know when you came out with the first demo program, but I was involved in designing a new technology to do expense reports online. Mm-hmm. And while today that doesn't seem to be a very big feat, 
if you will remember, and I know you do, uh, but our our listeners may not remember that in 1984, we didn't have a PC on every desk or a PC in every home. In fact, we didn't really have PCs much of anywhere. Um, but I came across uh, your product because I was working with Informix. Gosh, yeah. remember them? Yeah. Informix 4GL had just come out. And we were looking for a way uh, to develop this Unix front end. Uh, remember, most corporations were you know, big blue, very, very IBM. And we were looking for a way to allow people in the business world to do their expense reports when they got back from a trip. And we developed uh, an amazing front end uh, using Dan Bricklin's demo. And, you know, I don't know if this was broadly talked about, but we always uh, joked of, you know, is it live or is it Dan Bricklin? Mm -hmm. So, you know, here you were, uh, you know, an, an amazing person in our lives. And I, I actually, I think I told you, I didn't really even know you were a real person. I thought somebody had just come up with this name. Um, so, so here you are, and, and it's just amazing to me to have you on my show. So thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. It's my pleasure. So it's always nice to hear stories about, uh, about my demo program because most people know me for, for VisiCalc, for the spreadsheet. But all sorts of programmers remember me for this prototyping program uh, that was sort of king in the days of the character-based world. People oh, forget that those early PCs. That was actually, I think, in '85, '86. You yeah, probably did it in '86, because right. um, um, I was still assembling the first units on my dining room table in the late '85, <laughs> and '86 um, is, I think, when we had it a little better out there. Well, I worked for uh, actually a division of American Airlines uh, known as Sabre, which many many people are familiar with because they are the technology behind Travelocity and behind many, uh -huh. many travel agencies. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be given uh, not only a pretty free reign, I was actually given $5 million by Bob Crandall. And for those who know him, uh, you know, he is, is uh, not always known to be loose with his, his money. And he was the uh -huh. CEO of American Airlines at the time. Uh -huh. And I went off and bought this little software company out in, in uh, the Bay Area. And we actually rented an apartment over in Hayward, um, uh, California, across uh, from you know what is now commonly known as Silicon Valley. Although back then, I, I'm not even sure it had that uh, that moniker. But uh, it was an exciting time in technology, Dan, and you were right smack dab in the middle of it. So, how did you get involved in technology so early? Because you're you're not so much older than I am. So well, what, what was I mean, the I, foray? I, what? What was your first foray? My first foray, well, I mean, it depends on what part of technology. I mean, as a, as a child, I was interested in um, electronics and things like that. And those are the days when you would buy individual transistors and pay a lot of money for them. Um, and, um, and tubes, I was even you know, working with them. Um, I first got interested in computers oh, in, uh, when I first saw a card sorter. And uh, when I was a, a child, I was like probably in fifth grade, fourth grade. Um, but uh, I started learning to program. It was probably the mid-60s. It was around late, late mid-60s, around 67, um, when one of the local high schools had access to a time-sharing system. And um, I would go over there and use it. And I really took to the whole thing of programming and uh, then did it through the rest of high school and into college, et cetera. Always had access somehow. 
Very interesting. Well, my first corporate job actually was with Miller Brewing Company in Milwaukee, and I was uh, a card punch operator, and I was a, a horrible typist. Oh. So it, it was not a great first uh, contact with technology. But yeah, well, the first thing I typed into a computer was spelling. I spelled the name, the word wrong. So. <laughs> well, and that makes it a little hard for the computer to read. Yeah. Well, the word was dimension, you know, and, you know, T-I-O-N, S-I-O-N, you know. You know. <laughs> So where did you meet Bob? Uh, I met Bob Frankston. Uh, it was probably January of 1970. It was during my first year at MIT. And I was just starting a job working on the Multics project. Multics is a time-sharing system that was the precursor to Unix as we know it today, oh, wow. uh, among other things. And um, uh, Bob was just graduating and had um, uh, developed a particular system for using BASIC or something. And I was tasked with uh, finishing parts of it. And um, so we met uh, while I was working on that project, and he was working on that project. And a lot of us together would, uh, who were on that project got together oh, for dinner, for uh, late night uh, soirees out to breakfast, you know, because the computer would go till early in the morning. Right. Um, and we got to know each other really well that way. Huh. Very, very interesting. So over time, I mean, clearly technology changed pretty rapidly, and, and once in the late 80s, we started seeing personal computers become more ubiquitous. I mean, I, I was an early Macintosh user, so uh, I never got sucked into the PC side of things, and, and uh, uh, thankfully so from my perspective, because I, I am still in love with Macintosh today. But, but we saw personal computers move uh, into business first uh, in, in the late 80s, and, and then really starting to penetrate homes. And then where were you, you know, around the advent of the Internet? And, and again, I'm quite certain that you touched the Internet long before most, oh, yeah. most I mean, regular folks. Well, the, the first connection I had with it was one of my friends of these people who would go out to dinner together and all um, worked on the hardware. Uh, his bachelor's thesis was to build the hardware to connect the Multic system to the beginning ARPANET. And that was in the, uh, the early 70s. Um, and then we watched the ARPANET turn into what is now the Internet. And, but my first connection with the web part of the Internet, as we know it, was um, in 1994, uh, my friend Bob, who was at the time working for Microsoft, uh, but working out of his home here in Boston, in, in uh, the Boston area, um, he had a uh, ISDN connection back to Microsoft, which was at the time on the Internet. Right. And he demonstrated to me Mosaic, that early browser. And I videotaped it. Um, and every time he'd click on something, I'd have to push the pause button while we waited a minute for the page to respond. <laughs> uh, it was very slow in those days. And I'm going to post that video on the web one of these days. Um, oh, that would be I'm really great. into history with stuff. We've come a long way um, uh, from that. I mean, that, that was really early. There were barely any pictures. There were like, you know, there were only... Um, I think uh, it looked like a few dozen websites in all of a country, like Belgium. Um, and But things started growing, and I was working on a product called Trellix that um, was for writing linked page documents, uh, kind of like help files, but then eventually became web pages and websites. Right. And out of that, I got very close to the Internet and got into blogging in, really getting into blogging in 1999. And uh, 
Uh, I'm actually reading your page on Wikipedia, and uh, it, it talks about how you introduced the term friend-to-friend networking oh, on yeah, August well, 11th, 2000. What yeah, well, the Wikipedia is very random when it comes to individuals because they don't right. let you edit it yourself. Uh-huh. So it's people who don't know you who have to look for things that are online. And I happen to write an essay of the many essays on my website where I mention friend-to-friend network. And for some reason, they put that there as if it's an important thing. Um, I guess to some people it might be, but... Um, well, I mean, it has a new name now. I mean, it has, it has social networking. And, well, and I don't know if I exactly called it that. I mean, that was for that reason. It was, yes, that it, when you're, it was about peer-to-peer when the people you were connecting to through peer-to-peer were trusted third parties. Right. And uh, it was a little more technical than today's. I, I wish I had invented, you know, a lot of the social networking and stuff like that, but that's um, that's more a lot of other people right now. Well, so I you take know, advantage. You were of. An, an early friend. <laughs> yes, I was an early friend, like uh, Evan Williams, who um, uh, is the head of Twitter. He was also the co-creator uh, or the co-founder of Pyra that did Blogger. And um, as I relate in my book, the um, blogger, the company that did Blogger was about to go under. They were running out of money. In fact, they ran out of money. And they put a, a help request out on a blog page. This is like an early type of sending a tweet out saying help. And uh, I relate the story about how my company came to their rescue and gave them some money, which uh, helped bloggers survive as a free service. And then eventually Google bought them. And then he made money and then used that to um, help found Twitter. So when did you start blogging? And and it probably wasn't even called blogging at the time. No. Uh, Well, it it had all sorts of names. uh, But I started blogging in 1999. Um, I actually did something to somewhat extent similar a little before, but it was under Bricklin.com, my website. I started writing essays in early 1999. And in October, I started writing a more traditional type of blog, which is around the time that Blogger was uh, came out using a different tool. Um, and that's when a lot of people, Dan Gilmore started blogging then. Um, a variety of bloggers started blogging around 1999-2000. And, and then others and got there, inspired later. Right. Was there a community amongst you? Did, did someone try to link those blogs together at any point in time? Well, we all linked to each other. I mean, that was the whole thing. And, um, you know, over the, the next year or two, uh, the concept of a permanent link became much more common. In fact, that's one of the reasons you would want a tool like Blogger, because it automatically created those permanent links to each entry in the blog. In early blogs, uh, the posts just sort of sat there, and maybe scrolled, you'd scroll them off onto an archive page. But the fact that you could link to an individual post was something that was developed over time and became sort of really important around around that time, right? around the uh, late 90s, early 2000 and so. Hmm. And, um, but that, now the importance of that is that we could each link to each other and you ended up with your conversations between bloggers. And we had a lot of them in the early days. And you can read that in, if you read the early posts in my blog or any of the other blogs of those days. And so how did you get from your blog to actually deciding to write a book? Because as I understand it, your, your book uh, contains uh, a lot of the material, uh, including the history that, that you're so passionate about in this industry. 
um, ha- has made it now into your new book. Yes. Well, I, I got this call from a uh, vice president at Wiley Publishing saying, hey, Dan, you know, you have this blog and you have all these wonderful essays you've written. Why don't you turn it into a book? It's really easy. You know, you've written it already. Ha ha. Um, <laughs> and uh, then he passed me off to a uh, an acquisitions editor, Carol Long, who um, uh, sort of pushed on it for a while. And eventually I said yes, um, and um, realizing it was going to be a little harder than that. Because while I may have written it before, uh, to make the book worthwhile and readable in today's world, I really had to tie things together and write a lot of new material. And I have to go through things. And um, so I had the time. I had somebody pressuring me to do it um, who made good sense about it. And I did want to be able to have something that was in a different form than the website. Because, you know, if I stop paying my bills, the website disappears. And I have all the stuff that I've been writing for 10 years or more. And um, I wanted to be able to save that in some other form. And I'm the son of a printer, grandson of a printer, and a grandson of, a, uh, um, of an editor of a newspaper. And um, putting it in book form sounded like the right thing. So I went to a lot of trouble figuring out how to turn the form of a website and blog with the conversation among the readers and other bloggers into the book form. And I uh, hopefully did a good job of it. Well, I, I love your your intro to the blog that you've written about turning a blog into a book yeah. because it says um, that – and it's talking about this particular essay that you've written about this. The essay covers the process I went through to produce a book, and your book is called uh, Brooklyn on Technology, based on material I had previously published on the web. It's not meant as a how-to for everyone, but rather as food for thought for others considering doing the same. Mm -hmm. A lot of the information I see on the web about doing this is centered on how to get a book contract how, how to structure you know, your new blog as a gateway to a book or publishing it yourself. And, you know, I think that, that that's a really interesting observation, Dan, because I have joined a couple of, of groups online uh, for authors, and, and I've written a number of books. But uh, similar to uh, your first approach with your blogs, my, my books were about the technology for my industry, and so they didn't have broad appeal. And and they they weren't something that everyone would pick up at Amazon, you know, or Borders. It was something sold just to my industry. Now, fortunately, it also sold for close to a thousand dollars for my first book. So you know, you really only had to sell a couple of hundred, right. uh, you know, to make make back your your investment. But how long did the process take you of going from from the blog uh, itself to uh, the time when you turned over a manuscript that was ready for publishing by Wiley? Uh, let's see. Well, I started a little bit of work in last June, um, doing some sample chapters, uh-huh. and then. Um, but I was also doing other things. It was, was not a full-time thing. And we went then back and forth to work out a design that would work with their their publishing techniques. It was very restricted that it had to work through Word in a certain way, and they couldn't do uh, things manually in layout. Uh, the book had to be a certain physical size. So I couldn't use the page to indicate things that you would get from links and things. Um, and I chose the material, um, I think it was in the late summer, or basically I went through all my material. 
and printed out things I thought might be interested, interesting and put them in piles and went through the piles and threw out things and organized it. Um, and then uh, the first full manuscript went in uh, in November wow. and then back and forth with them. Uh, with um, uh, That was after some editing I had on my side. Then they, right. they edited it and they actually finished it. I think it was like in, oh, like um, February or so, we had the last back and forths of edits. Right, right. And they're pretty fast at getting the book out. And by April, it was printed. Wow, that, that's so, encouraging. That's yeah. really encouraging. Yeah, well, thinking but a lot of my that. material luckily existed. Um, I was writing and, you know, uh, I wrote a lot of new material for it. I chose material that I hope regular people would be able to read. It's not aimed at techies. It's right. aimed at people who like technology or want to learn more about how it's developed, how it evolves, you know, how people use it. Uh, it's not a how-to on uh, on how to on you know how to program or anything like that. Right. It's no, I enjoyed like I enjoyed the aspects of the book, as you said, that you've got this passion for history, and you and I were talking yesterday. Uh, about the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and, and then taking that all the way up to current day of how are we preserving uh, our legacy, even just for our families, about things that we've written. Uh, it's funny because uh, about 12 years ago, uh, my husband and I had been married for almost eight years and, and decided to have a child. And mm-hmm. I wa- went through, and I, I can't even remember what tool I was using at the time. I, I was on AOL, so this was in, um, it was in the late 90s, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wrote uh, a blog uh, about the whole process of infertility. Uh-huh. And uh, AOL recently got rid of those blogs. And oh. thankfully, I found uh, an archive of it somewhere, and it wasn't on my system. Yeah, people but use Google sometimes been, for that, the Google cache. Yeah, that would have been gone forever. Oh, yeah. So talk to me a little bit about that, because I, I know you've thought a lot about that, oh, yeah. and, and you did read, uh, write about the whole issue of legacy in your book. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it was just a shame going through my book. You know, I was going to these old, not so old blog posts, and they linked to things, and the pages weren't there. Luckily, we had archive.org, which right. is a website, the Wayback Machine, uh, named after, I guess, um, the old days of Mr. Sherman and his, uh, his um, you know, on, uh, what was it, um, Rocky and Bullwinkle. Right. Um, it was... Uh, they have spidered the web and made copies of whatever they could, and you can go back and see what what things were. It's wonderful. So I had to do that. Um, And so even in the last few years, things disappear. And what really bothers me is that um, we often put technology in place to make that hard, this whole thing of copy protection and, um, and other techniques that are used to control access make it really hard for archivists to archive things. Yes. Um, and we sort of want to decide now what we think is worthwhile for the future rather than let the future decide what they want. Um, and then we have the problem of incompatible formats. What, so you really have to think hard, like, what format do I want to do things? Say phonographs. Well, if you have a photograph and you have a list of what's on those photographs, one way is to have some special database that tells you that. But the chances of, in the future, that database product that you bought working are slim. So it might be worthwhile instead, if you have a list of who's in a picture on the back of the picture, flip it over and take a picture of the back of the picture. 
because then at least it's stored in the picture because we're pretty sure JPEGs will be readable. Uh, the, the format you get from cameras will be readable in the future because there's so many of them, and that's a format like ASCII that we've continued with for many years. will probably continue in the future to be readable at least. Okay. Um, make as many copies as possible. The reason we have a lot of, um, of religious documents that go back uh, you know, many hundreds or thousands of years are because people made copies of them and put them in multiple places. Um, sometimes only one place survived, but that's all it took. The same thing with your photographs and the things that you write. Um, make sure all your relatives have copies of everything. Right. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, how you also get the same per, or same story told from a different perspective. I mean, you know, I mean, the Bible's a great example of that. Of of everything that's talked about in in First Samuel or, or First Kings also appears in Chronicles, and right. uh, so so written in a different voice, uh, like you know, blogs that are talking about the same event, or even I, I guess I mean, I can't imagine somebody going in and wanting to archive Twitter uh, just because of the randomness of, of that. Form. Well, in hindsight, we might want to find something there. There, there's some incredible. You know, that's the thing. Uh, I mean, like I showed in, uh, what is it, the, the chapter on blogging. I took one piece of the time in blogging, the Democratic National Convention in 2004, when bloggers were first treated in, in some reasonable fashion by, um, you know, in the news uh, gathering business. Right. Uh, in that case, by the, um, the DNC was, was trying to treat them reasonable. And it's interesting to see how they were viewed by going back and reading the stuff that was written then um, and comparing and contrasting. Right. But who knew you know, what you wanted to save? Um, so sometimes it's, it's better. In today's world, we have these big hard disks that are really cheap. It's easier to save everything than decide in advance what to throw out. Exactly, exactly. And later yeah, on, take I, care I was, of it. Uh, I was picturing somebody uh, uh, going through Twitter in its current uh, form, but you're right with tools like Search Twitter and yes. and other things that have emerged, uh, you know, to make that reasonable. But you know, I, I like your uh, suggestion that people make sure that your relatives have copies because I mean, how many times have we heard people, you know, and I mean, their hard disk crashes yes. and you know they they are left just to replace it, and that's the only place that their photos exist. And mm. I mean, what's, it's really a shame. What's really cool is because. Um, the way advancement works in technology so far, um, all of the material you have on your hard disk now fits in the corner of the next hard disk that you buy. <laughs> right. So that all of your photographs that you used to have that used to take up half of your disk won't take up much in the next disk. So that, um, so for example, if your if your kids are going away to college and you're giving them you know a laptop to take with them, load up all the pictures in the corner of that laptop. Right. It's a little harder when it comes to videos and things like that because those now are a, are a little too big. Um, but we're getting there you know, to start digitizing some of those. And I did that, for example, my copy of VisiCalc. There's a copy of VisiCalc that you can run that's the original IBM PC VisiCalc that I put on my website. And people can download it, and thousands and thousands have. So there's a good chance a copy will survive. Right. Luckily, that's a copy that was created without copy protection. That was an internal copy, so it continues to work today. Had it been copy protected, it wouldn't have been able to continue to work, and therefore it would be lost to history. 
Very, very interesting. Well, you know, one of the things I'm considering doing over over the summer, because I'm going to take my show on hiatus for the summer, is actually going back and and listening to all of the different shows. I think I've done over 100 uh, since February Mm. when the show launched and actually try to put those down into a different form uh, and and actually write about the best of Solutions Live over this time because I have just uh, interviewed some amazing people and uh, to be able to take some of those snippets and, and, uh, you know, to get those into a book is is my vision for the summer. So I'm really glad to hear about the amount of time it took you uh, on on the blog side. But I didn't have to listen to hours and hours. I only had a few hours of podcasts that I ended up putting into it. True, but you know, I'm really looking forward to it because I think you and I talked about this yesterday. That you know, when when you uh, are in the midst of an interview, uh, even if you take notes, you, you really don't get everything that's being said. And that's right. and so I am really looking forward to taking that time. Oh yeah, no, you'll have a great time just listening to all your stuff because you have yeah. you know all these people on who've been uh, you know who have lots of great stuff to say, right. and um, in hindsight, often things have greater meaning because you didn't get what they meant because it was the first time you heard it. Totally, totally, and understanding that context is really important. So, so Dan, what would you say to people who have been kind of playing around it at blogging or, or trying to find a way to leave uh, the legacy of what, what's inside their head? Maybe they, they don't have a book in them. What, what would you encourage them to do? Well, continue blogging because that's a way of putting it down. Um, do whatever, given whatever blogging software you have, make sure you keep archived copies of it off of the blogging system, like back on your system uh, or whatever. Print out, I mean, some way so that you won't lose it if it goes away. And if you're interested in turning it into a book, um, we'll definitely look at what I did and uh, see what others do before and after um, uh, to see how, you know, different ways of being able to present that. But the book is just a subset of what's on the website. Right, exactly. But it may be the essence that you want to, um, or one of the essences that you want to be able to extract and share with others. That can be very valuable. And you'll learn things about yourself by, and by what you wrote by reading it. I mean, I couldn't write the end or the beginning of the book until I had finished the rest to see what I ended up with, and I was surprised. Absolutely. Well, Dan, can you tell people how to get in touch with you and remind them of the name of your book uh, as we close? Right. The easiest way to find me is on my website, bricklin.com. That's B-R-I-C-K-L-I-N as in nancy.com. And on there, you'll see um, a uh, – you can get to my website about my book, Bricklin on Technology, and you can buy the book most anywhere books are sold. Terrific. Well, Dan, it has been just an absolute delight and uh, brings me full circle after more than 20 years uh, with somebody who actually shaped my life. So thank you so much for leaving that legacy in me. And uh, I am hoping to share with you my book, uh, which recaps what's been going on on Solutions Live. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it a lot. Looking forward to your book. Okay, thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, great. We are now going to shift gears from the blogosphere to uh, space. So let me welcome our next guest. Let me get him on the air. Bear with me one second. Good morning, John. Good morning. Well, I am welcoming this morning John McBride, who is a former astronaut and has actually just a, a fascinating 
past as well as uh, is doing some very, very interesting things. Now, uh, you guys are right in the middle of a mission. How did the launch go last week? I didn't get to see it live. Oh, it was spectacular as normal. Uh, uh, the shuttle took off right on time, which is a good thing. We, we like to plan things and launch them on schedule, and this one went right on schedule. And I think the mission has been very challenging but very successful, and we're looking forward to recovering them Friday morning here at the Kennedy Space Center, assuming the weather doesn't preclude that. What time are they supposed to uh, get back? I believe it's 11.41 East Coast time Friday morning, so... That in its own right is a really something that we can, you know, before we even take off, predict within a minute or so when we're going to land. So it really is rocket science. <laughs> well, and and as it should be, I, I really enjoyed last night. I was watching uh, the ABC uh, Nightly News and, and was watching some of the footage of uh, what the guys were doing on the Hubble telescope. So just absolutely fascinating. Do you ever get tired of, of watching the liftoffs? Uh, no, I've seen probably, we've launched the shuttle, I believe, 126 times now, and I've maybe I probably firsthand have seen half of them and the rest of them on TV, but I never get tired of watching that uh, first couple of minutes as that thing lifts off, and particularly down here at the Kennedy Space Center, shakes the whole ground, and what a light show and what a sound show as it lifts off and accelerates from a standstill to 25 times the speed of sound in only eight and a half minutes. So you never get tired of something like that. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, it's it's funny because I, I've lived in Florida now for 10 years and, and haven't had the pleasure of, of coming over for a live launch, but uh, plan on doing that, uh, you know, here very soon. But it's interesting, my, my neighborhood, we live, uh, of course, on the other side, on the other coast of Florida, uh, in Tampa, and every time the shuttle launches, uh, everybody runs out on the docks. We live in uh, a marina community, and everybody stands there hoping that you know it will be at just the right angle so that we can see it. And uh, not this one, but the last one, uh, you know, we all were able to stand out there and see it. And and the kids who had been over to Kennedy Space Center as a part of a school tour or something uh, just had the greatest stories to tell. Um, now, I want to just kind of go back to a little bit of your history, John. Um, your naval service began in 1965 with flight training in Pensacola, as I understand it. Is that correct? That is correct. That's quite a few years ago, uh, right out of West Virginia University and into the U.S. Navy and kind of lived out a, a lifelong dream of mine to be a flyer and eventually end up down here at NASA and get to fly spacecraft. So and, and was, what, it was a storied what fueled, career. What fueled that dream, uh, you know, that that was very very early on. Uh, in fact, I don't think the space program was was even really fully, uh, you know, fully formed at that time. Uh, you know, when when you were a, a small child. So what what got you? What sparked you? Well, you know, I grew up with Buck Rogers and space, or, you know, Buck Rogers, I guess, uh -huh. and Flash Gordon and those kind of guys. And you're right, I did have not, I did not have astronauts, live astronauts, to look at until. I was in high school when the Russians and the Americans picked their cosmonauts and astronauts. We picked our Mercury 7, and, of course, Yuri Gagarin was the first to fly. But, when it, but even two or three years earlier when the Russians launched Sputnik and we followed with our Explorer series, and right. it not I only grabbed my attention, baby. but I think every young person in America was captivated by the fact that we were launching rockets into space and right. eventually we were going to launch men into space. So it got me at an early age, and I never lost track of it. Interesting, because my mother always called me her little Sputnik baby because I was born in October of 1957, which is right. uh, when Sputnik went into space. So uh, I had that as part of my legacy. 
So when when you decided that you wanted to be a pilot, I mean clearly you had uh, you had people that you could look up to who had been aviators, and and what was it? Uh, you know, was it when you were in, in flight school that, that you decided that you wanted to go on and, and be an astronaut? Well, it, it kind of, I guess you'd say, came to a, to a uh, it kind of it was a rising moment for me because I go back a little earlier. I came from West Virginia, as I mentioned, and Chuck Yeager was a, an idol of mine in my early years. So, and, and of course, when I got into the Navy and saw that uh, half of the Mercury guys and a lot of the Gemini guys came from the United States Navy, they were naval pilots, so I kind of tracked my career and looked by, or looked back at what they had done and, and kind of followed the career path that most of them had led, including test pilot school and postgraduate school and all those types of things, and in hopes that one of the one of the days in the future I would be or would have the opportunity to apply for and be selected for. At that time, we didn't know what the shuttle program was even going to be in existence, so just hoping for the future and looking for the future and planning for the future and Voila, as they say in France, I got to live out that dream. So, as I understand it, it, it was uh, early 1978 when you were selected as an astronaut candidate, and uh, that your your assignments, of course, have included being the lead chase pilot for the maiden voyage of Columbia. So, uh, when when you when you got that opportunity, um, as you said, it it really was the fulfillment of a dream. So, when when was that launch? Well, when was the launch or the class or the? Um, the the launch of of the Challenger, the initial launch. Uh, the initial launch of Challenger came. Well, the first uh, flight was on Columbia. Uh, uh-huh. Our first oh, flight okay. of Columbia was launched and landed in April of 1981. Uh, John Young and Bob Crippen were the first two to to fly to Columbia, and it was a very historic day, of course, because nobody in the history of mankind, as we know it, had ever launched a spacecraft and flown it around and brought it back and landed it like an airplane because every right. flight before had either splashed down or splat down, I call them, a Russian right. program. So this is a whole new whole new ball game. We flew the first five flights on the Columbia, the first four of which only had two people on board. Flight number five, we started adding crew members, went to a crew of four, and then flight number seven, which carried Sally Ride, who I got to flew with, fly with a little bit later, took our first crew of five. So we're kind of Building the momentum, so to speak, in those early days. Wow. So, um, when did you retire from uh, from your role as an astronaut? Uh, technically, I guess you could say in uh, 1989. Uh, I was I got to fly the Challenger myself in 1984 with the first crew of seven, and the, which included the first crew to have two women on board. Uh, one of which was Sally Ride, our first American woman to fly, but this was her second mission. The other woman was Kathy Sullivan, and she was the first American woman to go out go outside the spacecraft and do a, a spacewalk, we call it, or an EVA. Uh-huh. Uh, we also took the first Canadian, Mark Garneau, the first Australian, Paul Scully Power. So it was a very historic mission back in 1984. Wow. I was scheduled to turn around and fly again uh, in March of 1986. I was the commander of the flight that would have immediately followed the loss of our Challenger and seven dear friends, four of which were my classmates back in that first class of shuttle astronauts that you noted in 1978 so uh, following the tragedy we did not fly any space missions for three years president reagan asked me to come up to washington be the uh, assistant administrator for him and charge of congressional relations for nasa so that's uh, after three years there i retired and uh, went back to my home state of west virginia Mm -hmm. and so what brought you back to kennedy space center 
for the last eight or nine years, I've been participating in a program here called the Astronaut Encounter Program, where we have a retired astronaut here every day of the year, except for Christmas when we're closed, and develop a very close kinship and relationship with all the folks here at the Kennedy Space Center. Of course, it's our, uh, you know, where we launch and recover all of the astronauts since we started flying them back in 1961. So has a very special affinity for all of us who've had that opportunity. And After, I guess, seven or eight years, uh, they were looking for somebody to spend some time with them here in the next year or two, kind of doing strategic development for the visitor center, and they asked me if I would come on board for the next couple of years and help, help them do that, plan for the future, so to speak. So it's with great joy that came back aboard full-time here at the Space Center in February, looking forward to a couple more years. Well, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about today was the topic of leadership. And and clearly, when you are, are sitting at the controls uh, of, of something as important uh, to not only history, but, but to our future as the shuttle, uh, leadership is an absolutely essential part of being an astronaut. So it's not just the technical knowledge and, and the scientific understanding of what's going on. Can you talk to me a little bit about that, John? I think, uh, of course, uh, if you're going to fly the shuttle or fly as commander of the shuttle, you have to have exhibited a few traits of leadership in your previous career. And I, I think I gained a lot of that wherewithal or insight from my experience in the Navy. Uh, even though we're called naval aviators, our primary job while we're serving in the Navy, and I was there for almost 14 years, is to be a division officer and a, a leader. Uh, our primary job is to lead uh, men and women in the Navy, and our secondary job is to fly airplanes. So it really was a educational experience for me, not only aviation-wise, but also in how to live and work with people of all sizes and shapes and all backgrounds and, and uh, ideas and methodologies. So I think the Navy training was very instrumental in and developing uh, leadership characteristics. Um, I was fortunate, even as a youngster back before I even got into the Navy, to have worked summer times as a superintendent and a, and a construction foreman in bridge building. So I think all that stuff, when you stack it on top of, of each other, kind of gave me whatever skills I needed to, to learn and develop to, if you want to call it, be a leader. Uh, I love working with people. Uh, there's three or four things, and you know, I'm uh, <laughs> I've been working now for more than 50 years. I started working as a youngster in the bowling alleys, resetting pens and delivering newspapers and stocking groceries, and I never have stopped, hardly. <laughs> and I think there's three or four things I've learned along the way that uh, and maybe some people will stick these in their hip pockets and use them in their, in their careers or their futures. And I guess the, the thing I like to talk about most is being a professional. To be a leader, you've got to be a professional. I don't think... You have to be a doctor or a lawyer to be a professional. I think you can approach any aspect of your job or your assignment with the attitude that I want to be a professional in this uh, opportunity that somebody's given me. So, and being a professional is doing your best at everything you possibly can from the time you get to work or the, from the time until you leave. So, just uh, work hard. You know the same old things that mom and dad told you when you were a child. And I think your <laughs> right. your attitude's a very important thing too. Uh, approach your job with uh, enthusiasm and, and try to make a, a good day out of every day that you go to work. I think if you look around your uh, place of work and you've got 15 of you and 14 people are happy and you're not, you ought to take a look, a look retrospectively and say maybe there's something I can do to 
change the situation to make me feel better at what I'm doing. I think a key word, you know, we talk about leadership and all the mm-hmm. things I've gotten to do in my life, but I could not have done any of them without teamwork. Uh, right. I get I get to go on TVs and talk to you on the radio and email and all those types of things, but for every astronaut that goes into space, there are probably one or 2,000 people on the ground that are backing them up in one fashion or another. So none of us could go uh, climb on top of this space shuttle and be launched into space and do the intricate things that this Hubble crew just finished doing without all the thousands of people that back us up and train us and build these spacecraft and these tools and these satellites. So teamwork is uh, in, an integral part of every leader, I think. If you think you can do it all yourself, you probably won't make it very far. And I guess the last thing that really I focus on, I think everybody should, no matter what they're doing, where they're doing it, is to be honest. Uh, approach everything you do with the highest, uh, utmost integrity. Uh, we we learned that here at NASA. You can't try to fool people with your job because it ends up killing people. So it's a right. very serious situation that you be honest not only with yourself but with everybody you're working with. And sometimes it hurts to tell it like it is, but that's about the only way you can do it. Absolutely. Now, John, did you have anyone or perhaps multiple people over the years who have been a model for you and a, and a mentor uh, on the leadership side? I think I go go back to my childhood, uh, starting with my grandfather, who was a Methodist minister. We kind of grew up in a little closed-knit society back there in West Virginia. We were small towns, and all the families all lived and grew up together. And I was very fortunate to have grown up in a small town where Everybody knew everybody, and all the families still lived in the same area. My grandfather preached on Sunday at the church, and my father was a very strong role model, and so was my older older brother. So it goes right back to, the I think, the close-knit family community relationships that I had in a little town called Beckley back in West Virginia. And my high school principal and band director and football coach and basketball coach came to work there and lived their whole lives. And worked and taught us and that's the kind of wonderful opportunity I had as a child and I think a lot of the things that I've gotten to do in my life go straight back to Beckley, West Virginia and the, and the uh, learning experience I had there in my early days. Have you had the opportunity to be a mentor to others? I would think so. You know, if I've had 30 years of uh, experience in this space business and one of the most rewarding times of all is when I hear from somebody that I did touch over the last 30 years, and education is a hot button of mine. I you know, spend a lot of time in just about every school I can get to when I have the time to do it, encouraging the youngsters to perhaps follow in my footsteps, and I've, <laughs> the footsteps that I followed when I was a youngster. Uh, and one of the most rewarding periods, and it happens, you know, Maybe every year, once or twice, I'll get a letter from somebody that I touched over the last 30 years and maybe turned their life in a different direction, and that's a, a most rewarding experience. So I do get feedback, and it's very rewarding. Well, John, I would think that the work that you're doing now at Kennedy Space Center, I mean, you're you're touching kids all the time. And I, I know that when I first met you over at Kennedy Space Center, you, you talked to me about uh, giving kids the insights of, of the things that really are important, even in grade school. Um, you know, if if they do aspire to uh, a career as an astronaut. But one of the other things that struck me um, was how, and you just alluded to it when you talked about the teamwork issue of, of how very many people there are on the ground that, that make a mission successful. And even behind the scenes at uh, the Kennedy Space Center, 
um, you, you really have a little village there of, of between the folks at Delaware North who actually have the contract to run the visitor's center all the way through to the NASA personnel, and, and I, I would imagine that there are other support people. Um, you know, there, there must be tens of thousands of different kinds of, of jobs within the NASA community uh, to make everything work, right down to, you know, chefs and, you know, people who take care of the grounds. And, uh, you know, it really is amazing to me. You're right. It's a, it's a total teamwork. And if the, the folks who are maintaining the property or cooking the meals don't do their job, then it, it affects everybody. From the, it's a it's a kind of a pyramid thing. If one or two people at the bottom of the pyramid don't perform perfectly, the whole thing can come tumbling down. And it really is evident here at NASA. Well, and, and so especially we, we have when to work you, and live as a very closely knit family, just like right, and and not just when you're having uh, or where you're in the midst of a mission. But I know when I was there uh, around spring break, you guys were having absolutely record crowds at at the visitor center, and that that can stress uh, you know the infrastructure as well. So how are the crowds now? I know that the travel industry is experiencing pretty significant declines. Uh, how is your, your traffic at the Space Center now? I think our traffic at the Space Center is at or maybe even slightly above last year, and that's an amazing thing. Because uh, A lot of the travel industry around the country in Florida are suffering a bit, but I think if you take a look at what we do here at the Kennedy Space Center, it's something that stays interesting to people no matter what the environment, economic environment is. And I guess one of the things is that if people downsize from a larger vacation, they may want to go see the Kennedy Space Center. So maybe we're seeing some of that, but like you say, we're having record crowds. It's, you know, the things we do and the excitement we generate and the inspiration that comes out of this place really is not as affected by economics as a lot of other parts of our industry or our mm-hmm. sectors here. So we really are pleased about the turnout this year, and I think that everybody comes and sees the Space Center here at Kennedy can really look with pride at uh, what America has done and what we're planning to do in the future. So it's really one of those icons of American history and landmarks and all those types of things that people will continue to come to no matter what uh, the economic situation may be. Right, and as I understand it, you you actually touch uh, not only a lot of American children, but you touch children and and individuals from all over the world who come to the Kennedy Space Center. Well, that's that's true. We now have, by the way, uh, I think 37 nations who've launched people into space, either from here at Kennedy or over at Baikonur in the uh-huh. Russian complex, but also China. So there's a lot more people involved in space than just Americans or Russians these days. I took the first Canadian and the first Australian, as I mentioned. And uh, we've taken polls around here at the Space Center Visitors Complex, and uh, almost, well, right around 40% of our visitors that come here are from other nations. So we are mm-hmm. having a tremendous effect on not only our American citizens, but people that come to America. And <laughs> believe it or not, the we get a huge percentage of the people come to Orlando want to come and see the Space Center. Right, uh, right. Of course, well, we've got it, a large, it, lot so of large attractions over there, but they still are drawn to our Space Center because a lot of folks from other nations around this world, when they look to America, look at our achievements and our accomplishments in space over the last 50 years, and they certainly want to visit our Space Center as much as uh, most Americans want to. Absolutely, and and you know most people uh, may not know, particularly if they aren't familiar with with geography of Florida, is that it is less than 45 minutes, uh, you know, even from the Disney side of Orlando, which right. is uh, on the Kissimmee side. They're about 35 minutes from the Orlando airport, so right, it's right. almost as easy to come to our place as it is to go to the other ones. 
Definitely. Now, John, tell me a little bit about the Astronaut Encounter program. So if, if I uh, was, was to bring my, my family over to Kennedy Space Center, how, how would I interact with um, the astronaut who is there that day? Well, that's what's one of my uh, challenges when they brought me on board was to increase our exposure to the folks who come and visit the Kennedy Space Center because, believe it or not, a lot of folks think that we launch and recover and do all of our training right here at the visitor's complex. So they feel <laughs> very disappointed if they go away and not even get to see an astronaut. So we've, right. uh, starting in a couple of weeks, we're going to double our, uh, go from one astronaut on full-time duty year to two. Uh-huh. So essentially we hope to double our uh, exposure to the people who come and visit the space center, give them an opportunity to come and listen. And we do, we're going to start doing four uh, shows in our theater called the Astronaut Encounter Theater where our visiting astronauts will recount their experiences in space for 10 or 15 minutes and then answer questions from the audience for 10 or 15 minutes, uh, three or four times a day. And we're also adding an opportunity to come and visit personally with the astronauts in our uh, gift shop and uh, get signatures on whatever you want to bring with you or obtained from the Kennedy Space Center and have just have a personal one-on-one relationship or interfacing with the guest astronauts. So there's a lot of things we're trying to do to, I think before we started this effort to increase the exposure, we were maybe 10% of the people came through the gate got to actually talk to or visit with or meet an astronaut. Now we're, we're hoping to get this up to 30 or 40% minimum over the next three or four months. And really making it uh, the experience here at Kennedy Space Center more rewarding when you walk out the gate and say, I really got to talk to somebody who was up there, and that's our ultimate goal. Well, that that is really great, and we are so looking forward to it. Uh, We had had a a trip arranged. We were going to come the first weekend of May uh, to celebrate my son Sergey's birthday, and he broke his leg playing football (laughs) Tuesday before that. So, uh, we're hoping that next week he'll get a, a half cast instead of the big full cast he's got right now. So we will reschedule uh, our astronaut encounter. Why don't you try to reschedule it for the 13th of June, our next space shuttle flight, and I'll be happy to host you over here. Oh, that would be wonderful. I am going to write that down right now. Uh, you know, as you know, I think I told you we had adopted our son from Russia, so it, it is particularly poignant. Uh, you know, to have so much cooperation now between, uh, you know, the various space programs and uh, for him to see a little bit of his heritage from both sides uh, as as an adopted American and and as a Russian by birth. Well, I I can almost guarantee you, well, of course, there are people who won't agree, but almost to the man and woman who've flown in space, I think over 300 of them now in the last 48 years from all these nations, I Maybe there's one or two dissenters, but I think uh, 99.9% of us really are happy that we're all living and working together in space and that we've opened the doors to peaceful and cooperative exploration up there in space. And uh, We've been working toward this goal for 20 years. As a matter of fact, the astronauts and cosmonauts started meeting annually back in 1985. And if you think back that far, you realize that our particular governments weren't all that friendly. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but we we kind of maintained a relationship even during the Cold War since the back in the early days of uh, Mercury and Gemini and the Russian series. So we're happy we're living and working together. And we, as I've told people for a long time, we wish that some of the cooperation we found up there could be beamed back to Earth in all these <laughs> respective countries. It'd be a great thing. Well, John, it sounds like there's a book in there somewhere. Uh, I was just talking to Dan Bricklin, who uh, back uh, in in uh, the mid-'80s 
I was doing my first software development project and used a tool that he created called Dan Bricklin Demo, and we were talking about all the different technologies that he has seen you know, over the years. He was one of the co-creators of the VisiCalc uh, product, and uh, uh, just last year he uh, took his blogs, which he had been writing since uh, the late, nine, uh, I guess, 1999, and he turned that into a book. And, and it sounds like you just have some amazing experiences that uh, I, for one, would certainly love to read some of the details of, of what you have been through and, and look forward to, you know, coming over to the Space Center and, and hearing it, you know, firsthand in the Astronaut Encounter uh, program. So what do, you, what do you tell kids about leadership, John? And, and what do you want to leave with folks in, in the last few minutes that we have here uh, of, of how to focus uh, so that they can leave a legacy and, and much more than, than just, uh, you know, going to work every day and, and bringing home a paycheck? Well, uh, first of all, I got to listen to the last five or ten minutes of you and Dan, and I'm a great admirer of him myself, and my son certainly an advocate follower of him. Uh, there is a book inside of me somewhere. I've sketched it out, and maybe one of these days I'll have enough time to sit down and get it done. Uh, as far as for the youngsters, I think, and leadership and all those things, uh, you can't be a leader. You can't do much of anything, I don't think, unless you uh, prioritize things. And your number one priority, if you're in elementary school in particular right now, is to get your education. There's no nothing more important in your life, believe it or not, no matter what your friends are telling you. There's nothing more important in your life than your education. So don't squander it. Don't waste it. Uh, and the best way to do that is to do your homework and listen to your teachers and your parents who have your best interest at heart. I'll guarantee you they're the ones that care. And it may so- sound sometime like they're trying to punish punish you, but I think if you'll look at it, uh, particularly one of these days, when you look backwards, you'll say, I'm glad that they did that for me. I'm glad that they asked me to do this homework and learn and fill my brain with a lot of knowledge because now I can do something with my life. And the last thing you want to do is to squander this opportunity to get as much knowledge as you possibly can during these early years because when you get to be 18, 19, 20, you can't say, gosh, I sure messed up. I wish I could go back and try it all again. It's kind of late right. then. So right. uh, we're telling you now that the most important thing to do is to stay in school, study, work hard. School can be fun. Uh, it's not going to be fun if you don't prepare yourself and if you're not going to school ready to go to school every day. So the most important thing to do is to make school a fun opportunity by doing that homework and getting into class. That's the number one reason you're there. And if you're not doing that, that's probably why you're not having fun and not enjoying it because you're not doing what people are expecting you to do. So don't waste it. And you can't just stop at high school if you want to come down and work for us. You've got to go into college. And, of course, you can't go into college unless you do well in the first 12 years. So you're in a building block. You're in the formative stages of the rest of your life. So just don't mess it up if you want to lead anything. And you don't necessarily have to come down and work for us or fly spacecraft to be a leader. But you've got to really work pretty hard for the first 16 or 18 years of your life and really aim uh, aim 10 or 20 years down the road. And, <laughs> and I know it's hard to do because I was a teenager myself, believe it or not. And I know there are a lot of uh, competing forces out there, particularly these days. One of them is drugs. And if I ever say anything to anybody and kind of finish with that is that don't ever allow anybody to get you involved in that stuff because it'll not only mess up your life, it could kill you. And I just saw it last night, read it this morning in the newspaper here on the Orlando area where you and I live, and that 
we're losing people by the tens every day, not only right. to use use of drugs, but selling drugs and getting involved in all these, you know, these drug killings. So that's a horrible way to live your life. It's a short-lived life. Most of them die young and die tragically. So if you <laughs> don't do that, I guess is the best thing. That don't get involved with it. Stay away from it. If you're going to be a leader and fly spacecraft or lead anything, you can't get involved in that kind of a lifestyle because it will kill you. Right. And a real leader, by the way, would not do it themselves, but they would carry it one step further by convincing their friends it's a stupid thing to do. Instead of allowing them to drag you into it, you keep them out of it. That's what a real friend and a real leader would do. Well, John, I am putting the 13th of June on uh, my calendar and setting our sights on uh, celebrating Sergey's birthday in a belated fashion uh, with uh, the astronaut encounter and thank you so much for taking the time this morning and I look forward to working with you further on uh, exploring the different educational opportunities to expose what you guys are doing there at Kennedy Space Center to the schools in Florida. Thank you Chickie. I've enjoyed being with you this morning. Look forward to seeing you on the 13th of June. And okay. Everybody else listening, come on down. If you've never seen a space shuttle launch, you need to witness one of those in your life. Okay, well terrific. Thank you so much, John. Have a great day. Thank you. You have a good day too. Okay. Bye. Okay, we are going to shift gears now from space uh, back to uh, the realm that we live in and how to grow your business, your uh, influence through networking. And so I am going to welcome my next guest here. Good morning, John. Good morning to you, lady. And don't don't be don't be too sure we're not still in space. <laughs> well, it's a different kind of space. <laughs> well, we just had a, a very very interesting morning, starting off with uh, inventor, innovator, blogger, and author Dan Bricklin uh, talking about technology and its role in uh, helping to leave a legacy, and then of course John McBride who. Uh, was one of the early uh, shuttle astronauts and, and is now playing a, a real significant role in, in teaching our kids about leadership and uh, over at the Kennedy Space Center. So uh, now we have with us John Milton Fogg, and uh, I am just going to call you John because that's what your website says you want to be called. <laughs> that's a good thing. <laughs> it is a good thing because that's the name your mama gave you. So, uh, John, you are not only uh, a, a networker uh, by, by uh, I would say, by, by trade, but you're also, you've written quite a number of uh, both books and, and tomes and, and uh, blogs yourself. And uh, just tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh Gosh, that's my least favorite question in the I world. I know, I know, but you know what? The the humility that that uh, comes out of that is something that people also need to learn from, John. And and uh, you know, you've got a, a very very interesting background, and I think if you can just share that as a point of interest, our listeners would appreciate it. Oh dear woman, I don't know where to start with that. I'm much better answering questions. Uh, <laughs> what you know, I, I grew up with. Uh, as an only child of a working mom, um, so I've, I've ended up surrounding myself with strong women my whole life. Uh, I have a highly developed feminine side. I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Photography, which I practiced for a while, and I got to be a writer by default. 
I was working for a natural and health food company, and uh, I ended up in the marketing department, running the marketing department, and we had some budget cutbacks and couldn't afford to hire a writer, so I began to study doing it. And lo and behold, ended up writing for a, a living and a loving. I mean, I, what, the two things I like to do most in this world uh, one is to write. I love to write. I do, too. I do, too. Um, man, it just, uh, it trans, you know, I've, I've been looking at this recently as to what is it about writing that is so, that that creates such energy for me, uh, all kinds. And, um, one is that it's it's the freedom. It, it gives me freedom, Chicky, to not go where I go in other places. Um, God, that's pretty obtuse, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, clarity, clarity. The writer, the writer is known for his clarity. Um, yeah, but obtuse was a good word, so you know, I you know, I know something. Uh, there's a there's a freedom of expression in it, oh, and I get cool. that freedom of expression in two places. One is when I write, and the other is when I'm working as a whether this is professional or personal. When I'm working as a teacher, or a coach, or a mentor, or a student, those two areas of my life are the places I'm, I'm free. I'm me. I'm yeah. not concerned about doing something stupid, being ashamed, being humiliated, being criticized, negative, nye, nye, nye. Right. none of that stuff is present when I'm doing that. And I guess I'm reflecting back on this is the kind of thing that, that in, in workshops and seminars and uh, you know, at the, at the hand and feet of coaches and mentors and gurus in the past would say, well, that's because you're coming from your power. Well, you know what? As airy-fairy, uh, jargony as that may be, I think it's true. Yeah, you know, and, and those are actually, you've hit on something that's near and dear to my heart because those are the two places I feel the most comfortable too. And, you know, it's manifested itself at different, in different ways throughout my life. And, and I've always written as a part of who I am in my business life. Um, you know, I love to write and journal and blog, um, you know, both on the personal and professional side. And, you know, I wrote my first published book back in, in 2000. And, um, you know, the one thing that is still, uh, you know, unrealized on, on my side that, that uh, you have done an immense amount of is, is keynote speaking. And I've done some keynoting, you know, within my own industry, um, but, you know, haven't been able to stand up in, in front of an audience, um, you know, that didn't already know me by reputation, you know, from, from my industry expertise. And, you know, that's one of the things that, that I know when I get up there, I am just going to totally fall into my my place, you know, just what you're talking about. Yeah, I'm not, uh, I don't, I don't like, quote, keynote speaking, uh, because I'm too much of a student teacher, I'm too much of a coach. It's all about conversation right. for me. 
And so when I do it, I attempt, just like when I write, I, I, I try my darnness to, to write as a conversation. Now, technically, I am convinced and have never heard a contrary point of view. I'm sure there are some scientists of cognition and how the brain works who, who would argue this, but I think that when we read, we speak inside our heads. Um, so uh, the first major league book I wrote, the first book I wrote with my own name on it, I'd, I'd edited and what they used to call ghost-written uh, for people, uh, a number of books. But the first one with my name on it was called The Greatest Networker in the World. And one of the uh, technologies, I hate to say techniques because we usually pass that off as a cheap shot or a shortcut, but one of the uh, one of the things I did was to fill it with dialogue, make it a conversation, because my sense was that brought people into it uh, more readily, and the energy and feeling were were more easily and completely uh, transmitted uh, through through doing it that way. And that's the same thing when I speak. Um, I want it to be a conversation. Many times, for example, people will ask me to do uh, radio stuff or a teleconference, teleseminar, and you know they think they're going to wind me up and <laughs> let me go for half an hour, and I say, absolutely not. Now, right. I can spend 25 minutes answering one question. That's easy. And I do it because I talk too much. You know, I'm a writer. I'm paid by the word. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting, though, John, because as you mentioned that, when I take a look back at the hundred interviews that I have done, the ones uh, that allow me to be more conversational in the way that we work together uh, on the radio broadcast have always been the best shows. And, you know, I, I have just been so poisoned by uh, the whole webinar, uh, and, and I mean, you used a, a little different term for it, but it's the same kind of thing, where people do believe you can wind up someone and they can spout out information for whatever period of time. And uh, that just really isn't my preference. I think that, that the art of conversation is really what provides value to people. Hey, well, you know, tell me, when was the last time you sat down for coffee or dinner or a chunk of an afternoon with another human being, friend or not, stranger, somebody newly met, and they talked for 45 minutes and you listened, and you had a great time. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I'm a network way. marketer. I, I'm a network marketer. We have a famous thing called a three-way call, and that is where you're talking to somebody about your product or your business, and you're on the phone with them, and you bring your sponsor, you bring your upline person on. Well, right. in my history, I've had an upline person who said, you know, who started the call by saying, look, I've only got about 10 minutes, so let me tell you about this. 45 minutes later, he stopped talking. Oh, no. And it was only the respect, trust, no like business that I had with this prospect that kept that person with any interest at all, because that kind of behavior just blows people away. Life is created in conversation. It's the thing we do that the animals don't. And if you look at anything, you know, relationships, intimacy, politics, uh, of course, education, 
business, fun, adventure, you name it, you know, it's all conversation. It's all conversation. I mean, we jump on our sea dews or climb our mountains, and, and we just have a blast. And I'll tell you, the, the rich part of it is, you know, sitting down with a cup of tea, beer, or whatever is your beverage of choice afterwards and talking about it. Right. You know, and I think this is one of the challenges at, at this particular moment in time when when electronic conversation and relationships are so dominant, um, you know, whether it be the, the um, you know, microblogging on Twitter and, and various other things. We've got so many people talking and so few people listening and responding. Oh, my, my favorite, drive-by postings. Ah, <laughs> you know, Lord deliver me. Love the book. Great note. Yeah, stop. What made it a great note? What did you love about it? Please, Lord, give some thought to this. You know what right. this is like. Have you ever um, encountered somebody, like a chance encounter, and they go, "Hi, how are you?" and keep on walking? <laughs> I mean, it feels violating right why did you ask me do you you really want to know how i am because i'd love to tell you (laughs) but when that don't ask if you don't want to know yeah and so here we have twitter you know which has brought that to a uh promiscuous art um you know just i hate it so if somebody does a post or somebody does an update on, you know, on Facebook or somebody makes a comment, you know, I want to go in there and say, gosh, this was a great note because, right, you know, what I liked about this was, you know, people will send me, loved your book, always, always, Chicky, I write back, what is it you loved about it and what made that important to you? I want a conversation with another human being. Right. And I, you, I am fed up with but forgiving of, uh, because I'd like people to be forgiving of me too, thank you, <laughs> um, of that behavior. And, and the reason for the forgiveness is we were never taught. Right. right. Our parents didn't teach us, for the most part. Our schools sure didn't teach us. And the thing we were never taught the most and, and, and it, it's funny because this strikes people as backwards. And this cycles back, Chicky, to why I'm not comfortable doing keynotes is because I believe that speaking is all about asking questions. The human mind is a questioning machine. It's hardwired right. to ask questions. You know, Tony Robbins is right. And uh, when you're doing a keynote, you ain't asking nothing. It's tell, 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 sell, sell, sell. Right. <laughs> if you're a pro, it's sell, sell, sell. Get thee to the back of the room. That's the point of a keynote. <laughs> so, you know, what people don't seem to get is that questions come out of listening. When you're really listening, you need not worry in a business or a personal conversation about what questions to ask. When you really listen, pop, 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 come right out of the conversation. Mm, I love that. That, that's that's worth quoting. You know, you know <laughs> that's what, what I love about I, what you have said, John. 
can I give people a free, no strings attached URL that's going to be fun for them? It's a quiz that they can take. Okay, Um, here it is. It's pretty simple. www.speaking and listening. Speaking, A N D, listening.com slash quiz. Q U I Z. Speaking and listening.com quiz. Um, If you're intrigued when you go there, uh, look around uh, the site. There is a link that says free resources, and there is a ton of stuff on speaking and listening. It's all giveaway, no strings. I do not offer that course right now. You can't take it anyway, so there's nothing to buy. But go take the quiz. It will blow your mind. And and what's really fun and helpful is if you rate yourself as a listener on a scale of 1 to 10, where 10 is you are masterful, and 1 is you stink. You never, ever listen. Just rate yourself on that scale, and then take the quiz, and then rate yourself again. Interesting. And then do it in a month or two months. And see if by having the awareness of the ways in which we don't listen, uh, and, and just the awareness, just the awareness, because most of our listening is habitual. And a habit is something we do without conscious awareness, without paying attention. So if we focus on uh, and, and, and bring into our awareness the fact that we're interpreting, the fact that we're interrupting, the fact that we're plotting, planning, uh, fighting, uh, any of these things we do, dreaming, any of these things we do that has us not listen, just bringing that into your face, so to speak, uh, is really helpful and will help you change it. Because it well, ceases and it's to be a habit. Because you and I were talking about, about our kids yesterday, and, and uh, I've got an 11-year-old who is the carbon copy of of me and so you know i'm trying to help her avoid some of the traps that at 52 you know i'm still falling into daily and and uh, i am so glad that you shared this link with me because not only will it be good for me but i think it will give me some practical ways to help her not be so distracted preoccupied and forgetful which are are um, you know the things that she is plagued with even at age uh, 11 because she's so bright and you know she's just always off to the next thing and not paying attention at all to what's going on in the present um you know i want to i want to talk a little bit about um your whole notion about the word belief and uh I love uh, your uh, Belief Busters uh, project. Can you talk a little bit about that? What your mind believes you will achieve always and in all ways. That's, that's just it, girl. Um, our beliefs, human beings' beliefs, are our operating system. They control all of the hardware and software of of this human enterprise we are. Uh, and think of it just like your computer. Your computer has an operating system. The applications that are running on it, your ability to do email, browse, right. get on Facebook, uh, Google this, Google that, print, uh, input, output, 
any of that, all that, is based on your operating system. And in a human being, that operating system lives at the level of beliefs. And we weren't born believing anything. That's true. So all of our beliefs are acquired in some way. Some were shoved down our throat. Some were uh, surreptitiously, masterfully brainwashed into us. Uh, Madison Avenue and Mom and Dad were really good at those two. Yep. Uh, so we are this collection of beliefs, and beliefs are, you know, don't, don't mystify them. A belief is a simple yet powerful thing. It's simple to the fact that a belief is a habit of thought. You have this thought and have this thought and have this thought and get evidence for this thought and have this thought pushed in again and again and again and again and again, and pretty soon, I believe, is what comes up. Right. And because it is a habit, you can change it. Now, please, I am not saying, and that's so easy-peasy, it's just amazing. It's not. It is hard work, and in some ways it could be the hardest work you ever do because the some of these, you know, for the most part, we've long ago, you know, anybody who's 30, 40, 50, more, uh, long ago has passed the point where we have our beliefs. <laughs> they have us. Right. <laughs> you know, that's just that. And it takes a concerted effort. And there are wonderful technologies to use uh, and, and insights to use. And, and that's the whole business of what I did when I created Belief Busters. And, and people say, well, Belief Busters is really negative. How about, how about building positive belief? Well, yeah, absolutely. But what I learned was until you bust the limiting, self-sabotaging, underlying negative belief you can you can play with all the positive stuff you want laying it on top but it's laying on a foundation which will erode it you know or explode it mm-hmm. and Absolutely. that's that's why you want to go after the negative ones there's a uh oh i'm gonna forget his name paul oh he wrote that um you can't afford the luxury of a negative belief. <clears throat> Excuse me. Gosh, what was his name? Oh, darn. Anyhow, <clears throat> he uh, he said he wrote the book and, and spent his adult life working on uh, the business of belief. He said because there are people who see the glass as half empty and there are right. people who see the glass as half full. I'm the kind of guy who sees the glass <clears throat> and thinks, uh-oh, Somebody's going to knock that over or steal it from me. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, beliefs are powerful things. And if if you've got a specific question, I'm happy to answer it. Well, no, I mean, I just, I found that so powerful as I was looking through your, uh, you know, your various resources. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm just so grateful that you 
do provide so many things, uh, you know, that are available without having to sign up and pay. I mean, you do ask for for email address, and and that's all about the conversation, right? About the relationship, because you do want to know, uh, you know, who is tapping into to what you've been giving out. And, and I mean, you and I met through uh, through my friends uh, John David Mann and, and Bob Berg, who wrote The Go Giver, and you know, I can see the art of giving woven, you know, through a lot of what you do. So um, uh, I am going to dig into this belief buster stuff because I think you're, you're absolutely right. And the picture, the, the mental picture that you painted in that whole crumbling foundation that if you're just trying to load the, the, the positive beliefs, uh, you know, on top of that foundation, you know, you're just never going to get where you need to go. And, and, you know, this show is all about growth and legacy. And and so if I want to grow both personally and professionally, uh, and I do want to leave a legacy, uh, I certainly don't want it uh, built on those unwanted limiting and self-sabotaging beliefs um, that, you know, crept in, uh, you know, many times without me even knowing that they did. You talked about Madison Avenue. You know, you talk about what happens with young girls today who are seeing you know the the skinny the blonde the you know whatever it is that they're not and even though you know somebody isn't saying to them you know you're not all these things i mean they're they're making that connection just by seeing the pictures you know and i i know you're you're the father of a young young daughter as well so it it's something that we have to uh you know work hard to disarm I'm sorry, dear. I had you on mute. I was saying two daughters. I get it. I get it twice, and they come with a wife. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, I I have uh, an 11 year old daughter and a nine year old son, and uh, it's been really interesting to see the the contrast between uh, you know having had a girl first and and watching uh, kind of the belief system uh, you know that that has permeated my son's life because we adopted him when he was three from Russia and. And so he didn't have that, you know, first three years of our influence on his life. I mean, he clearly had people who influenced him. And, you know, you just never know about the beliefs that are are instilled during those first three formative years. And, I mean, I watch, uh, you know, kind of that um, survival uh, instinct kick in on him. And, you know, my, my daughter isn't that way. Uh, so, you know, I think we, the, those beliefs can go back pretty far. So, uh, again, I'm, I'm very thankful that you shared that. And for those who are listening, uh, the site um, that John has that talks about this is beliefbusters.com. Um, John, what else do you want to leave with our listeners as, as you take a look at, at the things uh, and, you know, networking has kind of been uh, your, your most recent life's work, um, and and a lot of that has been devoted to network marketing. But uh, you know, what what are the words of wisdom that you would like to share on the importance of networking as a growth agent, and and does that all tie back to this whole notion of conversations? Ooh. I'm I'm not sure how to answer that, Chicky, because I'm not sure where you're going with networking. Um, I, I guess uh, let me deal out another URL: uh, JohnMiltonFog.com/slash T 
G N. Tom George Nancy. Good. Thank you. I was trying to. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I wasn't in the military, so I can't I, I can't do that Tango Bravo Fandango. <laughs> so it's TGN Tom I, George I, Nancy Weekend W E E K E N D. That's mm-hmm. JohnMiltonFog.com/slash/TGNWeekend. Uh, and the reason I'm sending you there, I'm doing a a, a special weekend. I, I don't know retreat, whatever. Um, based on the book I wrote called The Greatest Networker in the World and uh, blessed to sell a million copies of that character. If you scroll down the page, the book is available as a PDF ebook for free and it's also available as a three-part, because it's long, it's like three-plus hours uh, read by the author. Right. three-part audio mp3 so you can download that you can stick it on an ipod burn it to a cd listen to it while you're jogging in your car that the stuff that i talk about there in the book and write about and the story that i tell it through and it is a story uh that's the most important uh, you know chunk of legacy that i can give your listeners uh today chicky it's the best of me as my family will be glad to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I uh, I am downloading it as we speak, and I, I uh, love uh, to listen to books uh, on my iPod because I really, really need to get out and get some exercise. My doctor tells me that that, that is going to be necessary in order for me to leave my legacy, uh, meaning getting over uh, my parents' legacy of uh, both dying at 75. I don't want to be that since I waited until 40 to become a mom. Well, well, you know, I mean, I've, as I've told you, I have a seven-year-old and a three-year-old, and I am dancing at their weddings, I'll tell you. Absolutely. And I'm 61 now, so. Well, that is my uh, dream as well, and uh, I am looking forward to adding your your book and your insights to uh, to my walking regime, which as soon as this show is over today, uh, I need to get out and do that, despite the fact that we're having another gloomy day here in Florida. Well, John, it has absolutely been delightful, and uh, you've given a, a lot of different places for people to reach you. Um, I am going to post those on the Solutions Live uh, blog site, which is solutionslive.blogspot.com, and Solutions is spelled with a Z. So, uh, again, I appreciate you taking the time, and I look forward to the day that we can meet. So do I, my dear. Thank you very much. All right, John. Take care. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, another amazing show today. And now I am going to bring on my favorite co-host for a Tuesday morning, Pamela Skilling. Good morning, Pamela. Good morning, Chicky. How are you today? I am doing great. And I am actually delighted that we don't have a guest today because I so enjoy (laughs) talking to you. And, uh, you know, kind of musing on on the learnings that you and I have both had. Um, I want to just recap uh, real quickly uh, kind of the morning that we've had here, which has been 
very, very interesting. And usually I have Chris Bradshaw, uh, my other favorite co-host, uh, with me, but she uh, has taken on a new job with a startup company, so isn't as available Ooh. to me as she has been in the past. But we started off She's the morning. She's going to come back and tell us about that. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, definitely. I'm hoping uh, that when we regroup in the fall that she'll be one of our first guests talking about their successes. Um, yeah. Started off this morning's show with uh, an innovator of the highest order. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Dan Bricklin, but he was one of the uh, co-creators of VisiCalc uh, back in the 80s and uh, was really instrumental in my life of helping me with software design back as early as uh, 1986 uh, with his tool called the Dan Bricklin Demo, which was essentially a prototyping tool. And we built out an entire application using it. And uh, so it was really cool to circle back with him, uh, you know, more than 20 years later and, and uh, hear about uh, where he is and his journey. And then had uh, John McBride, uh, former astronaut and, and part of the whole shuttle program and now working at Kennedy Space Center uh, on helping to uh, touch uh, children and adults alike through their uh, astronaut encounter program. And then uh, I think you just heard the tail end of my interview with John Milton Fogg, who is just uh, uh, an amazing guy. Uh, I mean, I love uh, the way his mind works. And uh, I'm going to have to write some things to him, telling him specifically uh, what I love about the way his mind works, because we were talking about uh, networking today and what he calls drive-by. I didn't get the exact quote. I'll have to go back and listen to it. But it was like drive-by commenting, which people do on you know Facebook sites and on Twitter, uh, you know about oh loved your book, you know. But he said what I really want to know is why. Why did you love it? You know what was it that made it right. come out? So. You know, he talked about how questions come out of listening and shared a really great site uh, called speakingandlistening.com slash quiz. And, and you know I love quizzes, and one of the things that I loved when you and I first met was the, the quiz that you shared with folks uh, about how to know it's time to escape from corporate America. Will you share that again, Pamela? Yeah. Uh, yeah, you can find it on my uh, on my website at escapefromcorporate.com. Um I actually have to look up the exact URL for you. I'll give it to you before the end of the uh, – you'll find it easily once you're on my website as well. Okay, well, that's great. Well, uh, again, I want to just share with our listeners that um, Pamela is the author of a book called Escape from Corporate America. And one of the things that she and I talked about when we first met was, you know, how do you know – um, that you really should be an entrepreneur. And I know a lot of people right now, because they're unemployed um, or maybe underemployed, are actually considering entrepreneurialism as an option. And so what I'd like to talk about, Pamela, is, is how to find opportunity that, that matches really what you're destined to do and, and do you have the things that it takes uh, to become an entrepreneur. So, what do you what do you tell people? Where do you have them start in figuring that out? Well, I think one of the things, and especially in this market, I'm so excited that we're talking about this today because I've been I've been noticing in the last couple of weeks two two things kind of happening simultaneously. I'm I'm seeing a lot of people who are feeling discouraged and asking if they really can make their escape or build their business in this economy, and is it is it impossible? Is there a dream impossible? And then on the other side, I keep meeting people who are um, finding these opportunities in the current environment and um, building businesses um, that function well, that are taking advantage of what people need right now. And, 
in any economic environment, people, there are things people need and there are opportunities to reach people if you've got the right business idea. So I wanted to make sure that we spent some time um, sharing some of those stories and giving people some encouragement that they really can get out there and do it. And I think I may have won a little bit. Um, but I think one of the things I would tell anyone is if you're, if you're thinking about, if you've been laid off, you're worried about being laid off, and you're concerned that what you really want to do, your business dream, is totally impossible, don't give up. Don't give up on yourself too, too easily. I mean, do your homework and, and figure out a practical plan. You know, you know from our past conversations that I'm all about action. You know, there's, all, there's the dream and then there's the action and the homework. But uh, I would advise people not to give up too easily. So let, let's kind of go back to when, when you were in corporate America and, and what the catalyst was for you to leave. And, and how did you know that you would be happier outside? Well, it took me a while. And, and that's part of the reason that I ended up writing the book is because I felt like I could save other people a lot of the kind of uh, tortured musing and back and forth that I went through because I kind of had this belief the way that I was raised and having worked in corporate America for so many years, to me, the idea of doing something that you loved seemed more like a fantasy. And everyone was sort of telling me, you know, you don't love what you do. You come in, you're in a paycheck, you're lucky to have a job. Nobody really likes what they do for a living. So I accepted that for a long time, and I tried to make the best of, of what wasn't a very fulfilling situation. And um, But it did eventually take a toll on me, and I really was feeling stressed out and really depressed about the idea of this being the sum total of my life. Is this what I'm going to do for the, for the next 20, 30 years? Is this all that I'm going to contribute to the world? And I know you're big on the idea of legacy, and I think that's one of the things that bothered me the most. I didn't feel I was making any kind of a difference or even using my greatest talents in, in the corporate world where I was. So, right. um, so it took me a while, and I think for me the, the turning point was not – um, wanting to leave because I wanted to leave for a while before I did, right. but just seeing some examples of people who'd done it, so I, I could sort of start to put the puzzle together and put together a plan. Huh. Interesting. Well, I, I think I've shared with you before that um, I don't know that I, I ever had the epiphany while I was in corporate mm -hmm. America that I needed to be outside. What What I see yeah. now in retrospect is observing my own behavior and interacting with other people in the kinds of projects that I was picked to do. And, and here is, I, I think, the biggest clue that, that people can have, and, and per, in particular, if you've got a kind of consulting tendencies within you, which is, is what I was seeing, is that I was picked yeah. for every single project that started with a blank sheet of paper. Other people, mm -hmm. my peers, were chosen to manage something that was already built, okay? And I wasn't getting those jobs. And, in fact, I remember being totally disappointed. Um, there was a job as, as a, a senior manager or, or maybe it was even a director position uh, of the training department when I was at, at uh, a, a group called Agency Data Systems within the Sabre organization, which at the time was still owned by American Airlines. 
And uh, one of my peers, Nancy Rayner, got the job. And I remember being so, so, so disappointed. But what ended up happening was just absolutely life-changing for me, and that was I was picked to head up uh, a venture um, to determine how we could bring automated expense reporting to uh, to corporate America, you know, that when they came back from their trip, they could reconcile the charges from their credit card all the way through to producing the expense report and to use a computer to do that. Now, as I told on the interview this morning with Dan Bricklin, these were the days when there weren't PCs in corporations. Now, I happen to have a Macintosh on my desk because I, I was one of the early adopters of the Mac platform. But that job you know, catapulted me into mergers and acquisitions, into writing business plans, and ultimately building a business on doing those things. And I did project after project after project after that. But that was the one defining moment, you know, where this colleague of mine got this great job that was perfect for her, but it wasn't perfect right. for me. And I thought it was. And, and, you know, so if I have to point to any moment in my life that showed me that I was an entrepreneur, it was that one. That's amazing. You know, and I hear that story so often, and, and I can relate. I don't think it, it wasn't one particular opportunity. But for me, um, I really do think that if my, if my job hadn't gotten so bad, I would never have made the move. And that's what I think about, you know, opportunity – in bad times, um, sometimes things have to get pretty bad to light the fire under you to take the risk to do uh, what you really want to do and what you know you were meant to do. And I hear so many stories every day from successful entrepreneurs and successful artists and people who basically um, started down the path that led to success because they were fired or they were passed over for a promotion or they were passed right. over for a job or, you know, things that they cursed at the time and felt sorry for themselves that turned out to be a huge blessing uh, looking back. So Absolutely. I think that's such such a common story. <laughs> oh, it is. It is. And, in fact, uh, one of the things that I've been taking people through in the mentoring that I do, and I think I've shared this with you uh, on the show before, is I, I have them lay out their life. Uh, you know, you can even start just with an 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper. It's kind of best if you turn it sideways and, you know, draw a line that starts literally with your birth and your childhood and draw on that line uh, circles that represent uh, those kind of dark moments of your life. And I usually have people, you know, actually uh, draw them in so that it, it it's like this dark blob on, on the line of those things that were disappointments or closed doors or broken relationships, whatever it was, and that if that hadn't happened, you know, right around the corner is always a diamond. And that diamond yeah. is that defining moment when you realize why the dark spot had to be there because you couldn't have gotten to the place of opportunity without the dark spot. And, you know, if you go through your life, you've got – those over and over and over again, both personally and professionally. And if you lay down the lives of those people around you and figure out the defining moments in their lives that got them to the place where their life crossed your path, I mean, then you get mm -hmm. a great appreciation for this tapestry, um, you know, this, this grand weaving that is going on around us every day. And uh, one of my favorite books is a book by Ravi Zacharias called The Grand Weaver. 
and where he talks about uh, you know the the actual threads that are going through, and sometimes those threads are dark or they're dingy or they're they're uh, you know gr- shades of gray and brown, and other days they're brilliant and they're you know the great colored shades. But you need the dark threads uh, really to make the colors stand out and be as brilliant as they can be. It's true, and, and any great success, talk to any person who's a great success, and I've had the pleasure of being able to interview a lot of them for different books and articles that I've written, and they all have these huge failures, too. And if you talk to them, you know, a few years before, you might have realized, you know, this person might have uh, told you they were never going to get anywhere. <laughs> you know, they, everybody goes through these failures bef- before you can have success. I, I truly believe that. And uh, I was just writing about... Albert Einstein, actually, I did a blog post because um, I was reading a bit about him and about his early career, and I think it's it's so fascinating that he basically was in a dead-end job as a clerk in a patent office and was actually told he was um, not bright enough to be promoted uh, <laughs> in his job. And meanwhile, just a few months later, um, you know, he had this breakthrough that changed the way we see, all of us see the universe forever after. So. Right. I find that inspiring. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I think the whole notion of, of failure preceding success as opposed to being the opposite, yeah. you know, is, is the Absolutely. real jewel. You know, that's the real diamond. And if we can, if yeah. we can grab a hold of that, you know, because, I mean, I, I think what I was trying to allude to before and, and people – who are currently unemployed, who are, you know, thinking that they can just go into business for themselves and that that's going to solve everything, um, you know, quite often they will first experience a failure, um, you yeah. know, prior to just hitting that absolute home run. Um, and, you know, I mean, I look at my own life and, I mean, I, I did come out and I, I was very successful as, as a consultant, but 10 years later I realized it wasn't taking me anywhere and I was just as much a prisoner uh, to my own consulting firms, I had been to a corporation. I mean, how many times do you hear that? Right. And and so then I set out to change uh, the end of the story. You know, I, I, I set out to rewrite the story. And the next chapters that unfolded weren't the way I wanted the story to unfold. And because there were other people helping to write that story, um, it took a whole different turn. And and so now I'm you know again back to trying to rewrite the the Chickie Fitzgerald story and and I don't know what the outcome's going to be, but I know that this last five months of of doing this radio show has been a, a real cornerstone and certainly not a dark spot but one of the great diamonds, uh, you know in my life and e- even though economically it has not been a diamond. Um, but just the people that I've met and, I mean, the people you've introduced me to. And, you know, I mean, it's so funny to think that you and I have never met. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, know. Chris, I've Chris my, other, my other co-host, <laughs> yeah, my other co-host, you know, she and I have been, uh, you know, dear friends for, for well over 10 years. And, uh, you know, I look forward to the day when you and I can finally meet. Yeah, I do too. I feel like we know each other already, but it's, we've never seen each other face to face. Right. Yeah, and I think it's interesting too that um, you know this applies in your company too. And you you touched on this this idea of being able to embrace failure once you started your business and and know that you don't know everything and you're you're going in with that business plan. And I do encourage doing a lot of planning and research. But 
we all know as entrepreneurs that the plan rarely goes exactly as <laughs> expected, right? Oh, no kidding. And uh, being able to embrace that and, and learn from it and change direction if you, if you have to is <laughs> great. So let, let's talk about that. And, and uh, you know, not everyone that you interviewed for, for your book was successful, the, you know, right out of the gate. And, and there were a lot of lessons learned. Can, can you think about the ones that stick out, uh, you know, in your mind of, of uh, different experiences where there was learning from failure? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think you know one of the one of the ones that immediately popped to mind is um, a gentleman I know who was a very senior technology executive. He worked for HP. He worked for um, a lot of big companies. And you know, by the time he got laid off, and this was during the last economic downturn when the dot com bubble burst, uh, he was laid off in that environment, and he was you know, having a very difficult time because he was older at that point and he felt that there was a lot of age discrimination at play. Um, he just could not find a job. And it was a very humbling experience for him because he had always been extremely successful and he was used to having a huge team under him and, and being treated with the utmost respect and having that position as part of his identity. And so that was a really trying time for him. And he um, he got very depressed. And it wasn't until... A mentor of his encouraged him to basically seize control back and start his own consulting company. Um, you know, if, if nobody's going to hire you as SVP, which is what he was going for, you know, then just pick that title of CEO for yourself and right. start your own business. And he did it. He did it kind of reluctantly because he felt that um, he still thought it would be a lot easier to get a job, as many people do. <laughs> um, but he pretty quickly how rewarding it could be, and he's also one of those people that, you know, he wasn't immediately equaling his old salary right out of the gate, you know, it took some time to build that business and to develop those connections, but um, eventually he got to the point where he was very successful as a consultant, and he um, he didn't care anymore that, uh, <laughs> that he uh, wasn't getting called for job offers because he was making more as a consultant than he would have going in-house. Well, and, and so that one. actually can can easily be true. And, you know, one of the things that I loved was that in my corporate life, I had built up all the skills that I needed to be a successful consultant. What I didn't know, though, and, and uh, what I had to learn the hard way, was that when you hang out your shingle, uh, and everyone who's gone out to be a consultant has learned this, uh, you know, uh, yeah. some some more quickly than others, that managing the cycles, managing the ebb and flow and the feast or famine of consulting is really the biggest challenge. And, yes, absolutely, you can make, uh, you know, a pretty significant chunk uh, hourly or daily uh, versus what your original salary was. And, yes, you can choose whatever title you want, chief inspiration officer, chief executive officer, whatever you want. But managing the money side of things and managing the fact that if you land that great contract with that big multinational company, um, you know, that that's really wonderful. But guess what? Their payment cycles are 90 to 120 days. <laughs> and, you know, how yep. are you going to make it? And so, you know, those are some of the things about, um, you know, consulting and being in business for yourself, particularly in a service 
job or a service, yeah. uh, you know, approach that people don't think all the way through. And and so, you know, the appeal of charging, you know, you name your number, whether you start at $1,000 a day or you're fortunate enough to be able to, you know, bill three or $4,000 a day for what you do, um, you know, getting getting people to actually commit and and to hopefully someday pay you some of that up front, uh, you know, which is what uh, certainly after a number of years of consulting I was able to do. Um, you know, that there, there's just a lot to it. Yeah, and, and building that into your day and into what you do, because when you first start consulting, you think, hey, I'm great at consulting or I'm great at whatever I'm an expert in. And you don't really think about building up your skills in those other areas like sales and, uh, you know, following up and keeping track of invoicing and, and uh, all of those things. Working on the business. Your, uh, yeah, working on mm-hmm. the business rather than working in the business. Yeah. Um, exactly. You know, and that that was made famous. Uh, I, I, well, I'm not sure he's the one who coined the term, but the whole uh, e myth, uh, entrepreneurial myth exactly. series. Um, That's right. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Definitely. And and even though the the examples he gave in in his book, um, you know, I, actually in retrospect, I, I thought were just a, a little bit. I'm going to use the word silly, and I don't mean that he is silly by any stretch of the, the imagination because his <laughs> books are powerful. But he, you know, he used the example yeah. of a, a pie maker who. Uh, you know, she had been taught by her aunt and, and was just expert at everything pies. And so her friend said, oh, you got to open a pie shop. And, you know, while that sounds like a great idea, um, you know, she didn't know anything about sales and marketing and accounting and managing. And, and, you know, how do you grow a business not to depend on you? Yes. Well, and that's funny because that example, it's similar. I, I know a woman in my network of entrepreneurs that I know here, women entrepreneurs, and she started a company called Tribeca Treats, which is basically a bakery uh, down in, in New York's Tribeca neighborhood. And, you know, she did have some business background. She used to be uh, in investment banking, so she came in with both the ability to bake and the ability to run a business. Um, but she has often told me that the biggest growing pains for her were, you know, figuring out how to, to hire and train her staff and, and be able to create a staff and a team so that everything wasn't so dependent on her where she could could step back and let go a little bit. I think that's something many of us entrepreneurs face when we start to get to that next level of growing our business. Right. Right. And she's, so been, what do you and she's been very successful. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I mean, the real key, and, and I'm, I'm actually looking at, at uh, Michael's book on my shelf, and, and uh, his name is Michael Gerber, who wrote the E-Myth series, and, and the latest one that I have is called E-Myth Mastery. And, you know, from time to time, I, I pull that book back out and, and read through the, the very, very practical tips um, about how do you build an organization. And the one thing that, that sticks out in my mind is that he focuses on no matter what you're planning on doing to grow your business or someday sell it, that, that you actually need to build it with franchising in mind, right, and, and mm-hmm. to document yeah. everything in such a way that you could franchise it. And I think I think that's really uh, a a brilliant way to approach entrepreneurialism. That that no matter what great idea you have, is is could you document it in such a way that you could hand it over to somebody else to run? Because if you can't, yeah. you're stuck, <laughs> right? Right. Then that's all you're all you're going to be is you're going to always be limited to the number of hours 
that you have. That's how, that's going to be the limit on your uh, on what you can earn. <laughs> right, right. And you know, again, if, if somebody thinks that they can, uh, you know, sell their time for a thousand dollars a day, um, you know, they they mo- try to do the math of of how many days they think they're going to work, and and uh, you know, and and the number sounds pretty good, by the way, <laughs> but that's not the reality. Yeah, yeah. And uh, again, if if you are the business. And, and uh, you know, we've talked before about people who come out and, and you know, name their business after themselves, which I, I happen to think is, is uh, you know, really the cardinal sin of entrepreneurialism is, is then, then you really have put some handcuffs around you because who's, who's ever going to want to buy a business that has your name on it? Right, exactly. Unless, Unless maybe you know, if Michael your name Jordan is Bill Gates or Dan Bricklin. <laughs> right. Right, exactly. Yeah, I, I agree. And and I think it's, you know, it's one of those things, too, that, you know, a lot of people might say, well, you know, I can't afford to hire anyone right now. I can't afford to um, to think about that. I just have to pay the bills. But I think that is, I mean, it is true. Maybe you can't afford to hire someone. But like you said, you can document. You can think about what processes can you create and make your intellectual property. Even if you don't have someone else who can do them right now, keeping your eye on that as a future of creating this intellectual property around whatever processes, products, whatever it is that's unique about what you do, the way you think, and think about long-term and being able to have a team of people who can go out there and, uh, and do what you do. And it may not happen tomorrow, or maybe you can if things take off. Or maybe you can partner or find freelancers if you can't afford to hire a full-time team. But I think starting from the beginning with that vision is really important. Right, right. So we we have just a few minutes left. Um, you know, as as our listeners are thinking uh, about where they are and and they're in in corporate life today, and and they know they really do have what it takes, uh, and they have a great idea. Maybe they don't have the capital to make it happen. Um, what what are the things that people can start doing while they're still employed? I know you've written a lot about this. Yeah, I'm a big believer in uh, the call the approach ethical moonlighting, and I'm a big believer if you still have that day job to um, hang on to it and do what you can on the side until you're ready to to make the leap. And there's a lot that you can do on the side. I mean, starting out with with research and um, talking to people, writing your business plan, working out your numbers, all of that stuff can be done um, while you have a day job and uh, while you figure out what you're going to need to do this full time and how long it's going to take for you to get there. But you can also do things like create, um, you know, create your product, start designing your product, start selling your services on the side. I know a lot of people who, um, who have businesses on the side as a long-term thing, and they hope to someday make it full time, but for now they're doing it when they can on weekends and the evenings. Maybe they're selling their crafts on, uh, on eBay or on other sites, or they're doing some occasional consulting. So there's a lot that you can do, and I think momentum is so important. And just getting started and not waiting until the conditions are perfect to take any step at all. Take right. a small step, whatever you can do now. And you know, and there are opportunities. That's one thing I wanted to mention is there are opportunities in a recession. There are things people need, and I just um, I just did an interview with uh, a gentleman who started this uh, regional. 99 cent store chain, and they are doing beautifully. <laughs> That's right. a great business to be in right now. Um, I just spoke with a millionaire Mary Kay representative. Um, people are still buying lipstick because it's an affordable indulgence. So 
So think about what you can do to meet people's needs in this economy and where your opportunities might be to, uh, to get you through now and be able to flourish even in a challenging environment. Well, I think that's really great advice, and uh, I, I uh, wanted to take a little time to talk about some other ways uh, to fund it because I'm just uh, coming out with a book next month called Bootstrap Business, but uh, we have run out of time for today. So, again, Pamela, I just so appreciate you uh, taking the time just to be on uh, yourself today, and I've enjoyed our time together and looking forward to next week and hearing about uh, our guest for next week. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. Have a great day and a great week. Okay. Take care. For more information about Solutions Live, see www.solutionslive.com. Dot blogspot.com. That's solutions with a Z. I trust that today's show provided you with a bit of innovation and some inspiration. Join us again on Thursday from 10 until noon for the personal side of professional life. Go out and begin to leave your legacy today.